0: We are going to address the matter of Jesus as a man of prayer and in the school of prayer with Christ. But to do that, I'm going to begin in a somewhat unusual place and it is Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6 verse 1, we have the choosing of the 12 of the 7 Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were often overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. Verse 7 The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, You know, Lord, you know that we have a great need of Thee. Help us. Help us in such a manner that we will know that we have been helped by You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, I want us to focus our attention for a moment on verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, I have said that I'm going to speak about Christ as a man of prayer, being in the school of prayer with Christ. But one of the ways that you can truly discern the success of a teacher and the teaching of a teacher is by looking at his disciples. And here we see that Christ had done very good, very well in teaching these men. Now they had set before them a problem, a tremendous problem. You know if you've read the Old Testament, the Law and even the Prophets, even the Book of Proverbs, what God says about care of widows and orphans. And then you go to the life of Christ, and what do you see? Throughout the Gospels, we see Him caring for the physical needs of people. And it wasn't simply to demonstrate that He was the Messiah. He honestly cared. He honestly loved. And so when you look at the big picture, you think, well, these apostles are presented with a tremendous need and Christ dedicated Himself a great deal of time to meeting these kinds of needs. You would expect them to say, "Okay, let's get going. We'll, We'll take the lead on this. We'll set down the Word. We'll put on the apron. We'll serve tables. It would be reasonable. Except that they had truly learned from Christ. Christ devoted Himself to the proclamation of the Word of the living God. And Christ dedicated Himself to prayer. And everything else was secondary in His life. Now I want to point something out in verse 4. The order. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Many times, much is made of the order here. Even in the case, the case of the quote about from James O. Frazier, who served among the Lisu people about prayer, prayer, prayer. And I have read him, I understand what he was saying. A man like him could say that because he was a man so devoted to the proclamation of the Word. But I don't want you to misunderstand the quote. He was in no way diminishing the necessity of proclamation. Now here, of course, we have the book of Acts and it was written in Greek. And in Greek, as you've probably all been instructed, order is extremely important. And if something occurs first, it's usually because of priority. But that is not always the rule. Please understand that. We're not governed simply by by what would be mechanical rules of a language. At the same time, we must interpret context and we must take everything within the law of non-contradiction, that the Scriptures do not contradict. Notice that in the Great Commission, Jesus does not say, go into all the world and pray. Now, I'm here teaching about prayer, I'm here to promote prayer, but I want you to understand the order. He does not say, go into all the world and do a prayer walk, does He? Notice also very carefully that in the first answer in verse two, it is not desirable for us to neglect prayer and the word of God in order to serve tables. It doesn't say that, does it? What does he say? It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. If you are a man of God, and I don't mean preacher. Because there are a lot of preachers that are not men of God. If you are a man of God, your primary task is proclamation. It is preaching. It is preaching that causes the word of God. It is preaching that causes the kingdom of God to expand as the word of God expands. Look here for a moment, look at verse seven. After they had solved this problem, it says, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. You can see throughout the book of Acts that as the word is more greatly proclaimed, there are more disciples gathered. There's always a perfect relationship, a direct relationship between the expanse of the kingdom of heaven and the proclamation of the word. Always in the book of Acts. Also, I want you to understand something apart from a correct study of Scripture, apart from renewing your mind in the Scripture, apart from developing a mind of Christ through copious amounts of time in the Scriptures, both privately and congregationally, setting under biblical preaching, you will never, never, never pray as you ought. Now I'm going to say something that is going to sound rather rude. I don't mean it to be. As a matter of fact, it's love that's going to cause me to say something that may be misunderstood. I hear so little biblical praying. The great malady of the day. Unbiblical preaching. We hear a lot about that and we should. But have you ever thought about unbiblical praying? Very few men, even in the pulpit, pray biblically. Very few men, even in the pulpit, pray with a right attitude. Let me give you an example, and I don't want to be accused of drama or trying to do something extraordinary. But I see even reformed men doing something like this. Wow, it's good to have you all here today, and I hope you're going to have a great time now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, we. it makes my skin crawl. Really? Really? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each one having six wings with two. Really? Then I cried, woe is me. I'm undone. You say, oh, the blood of Christ. Yes, the blood of Christ gave you entrance, but never gave you right to treat the presence of God in such a fashion. You pray that way because you don't know God. You don't know God because you don't study God. And the pulpits are raped of preaching on God. I've had so many come to me at times. Brother Paul, I have my masters. Brother Paul, I have my Ph.D. And I'll always ask this question. Well, let me ask you a question before, right after you were converted, how many years did you dedicate to studying the attributes of God? And they say, well, I I, I don't know what you mean. I mean, I took a discipleship course. Okay. well, when you went to Bible college, those four years, how many of those four years were dedicated to studying the attributes of God? Well, I had a systematic class, theology class, for one semester. And, well, we touched on that, I think, about two, two weeks. Okay, and your masters, those three, four years or whatever. How many of those years were dedicated to studying the person of God? Well, my, you know, my masters was in, in textual Lower textual criticism, okay? Your PhD, how many of those years were dedicated to studying who God is? Well, I've been preaching for 30 years of those 30 years. How many of those years are dedicated to preaching on the attributes of God? People cannot pray properly apart from the scriptures. Apart from private devotion in the scriptures. And apart from expository preaching in the pulpit. I'm sorry. You can't. You can't. It would be dangerous to do corporate praying in most churches. Because the end result would be more sin. Yes. Now... I'm not here to hurt you, I'm here to wake you up. Men of God. It's a genitive of what? Possession? We belong to Him. Description? We're defined by Him. And we know Him in our mind, propositional truth or the study of Scripture. But that is not all. We know Him by walking with Him, by laying before Him. We know Him in the night watch. When the wife says, come to come to bed, come to sleep, this is enough. He's the living. And although revealed in propositional truth, he is more than a propositional truth. He is the living God, and we are to be men of his belong to him. I remember when I was first walked into to my pastor years so many decades ago and I said, God has called me to preach. My pastor was a big man, six foot six, 240 pounds, gray hair pulled back. He He was a preacher, he was thunder. It was sometimes terrifying just to listen to him. Without even looking at me, he said, Boy, can you be alone? And I thought he meant that if, if I really preached the truth, people would hate me and I would be alone. Well, that's true, but that's not what he meant. He said, well, all the other, Preacher boys are running around in bachelor packs. Can you pull yourself away and be alone with God? Can you spend more time with Him? So that when you do walk out among the people and open your mouth, they know that someone is among them that may not be the most intelligent or the most studied. But they'll know there's someone who knows God. We're not entertainers. We're not even, first of all, friends. We are men who stand before God's people. It's a similar relationship to that which you have with your children. I love my children. I love them. The closest I think I come to idolatry is with my children. I I hate to travel because of my love for my children. But I'm not their friend. I'm their father. Now, I am a friendly father, but I am a father. I hope to be a friendly preacher and spend copious amounts of time with people outside of the pulpit. But I'm the man that has been called by God, so help me God, to tell them about God, to encourage them, to teach them, to instruct them, to love them, to rebuke them, to hurt them, to wound them, and then bind up the very wounds that I have caused. Do you see? Yes, this country needs expository preachers. Yes, this country needs good theologians. This country needs men who walk with God. And I wanted to address this before we we got to the matter of Christ, because I wanted to be very, very clear. How do you learn to pray? You renew your mind. In what way? This is how I would teach you to pray. I would tell you to read through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, and pay particularly close attention to every prayer in the Bible. Read them over and over and over and over again. Memorize some of them, think about them often. And you know what's going to happen gradually? It's the power of God's Word. Your mind is going to be renewed, and you are going to find yourself praying biblically. Because you have been so saturated by the prayers of the Scriptures. That they begin to change everything about you. The way you pray, the way you address God, the way you speak to him. Everything about you. And again, that goes back to what? The word of God. I'll probably talk about corporate prayer tomorrow when I talk about the heart of Christ in prayer. But I am a member, not an elder. I am a member of a church. that has elders, Anthony Mathenia, Jamie Tucker, Luke Nash, Jeff Shauver. And I'm under those elders and I have sat in the pulpit so often for years now and marveled. Corporate prayer. Is gigantic in that church, and I can say it because I'm not a leader there. Sunday morning begins at 10, the main service. It is one hour of corporate prayer, and then three hymns and expository preaching for one hour. Sunday night, expository preaching, but sometimes there's a solemn assembly. When there are problems in the fellowship, or someone hurting, or something's going on. So a solemn assembly will be called, and it may be one, two, three hours of prayer. Now at first I can tell you this, it was not at all pretty. I look back eight, nine years ago, or how many years ago it was, it was not pretty. So many people praying in an unbiblical, Silly fashion. But as they sat under the Word of God, and not necessarily sermons about prayer, but as they sat under the Word of God, those prayer meetings began to change. They began to change. They began to change. And now they are a delight. I am as edified so often as much by the prayer meeting, or the solemn assembly, or the call to intercession, as I am by the exposition of the word. And that is saying a lot, but you want to know why? Because when these lay people open up their mouth, it is either Scripture or conformed to Scripture. And it didn't happen in a day, it didn't happen in a year. It happened in near a decade of right preaching, of right teaching. You can call together, you can make such a cauldron of foolishness, such a mess. You bring a bunch of people together to pray who know nothing about God. Know nothing about approaching Him through a great high priest. Know nothing about the cost. They've not heard the stories of Usah or they've been watered down. When you get a people that sit under expository preaching, true expository preaching, fire! Not just intellect, not just a Bible study, but preaching, and there's a difference. If I want just facts, I'll read a systematic theology. When I come to church, I want to hear preaching, unction, application. Demands made on my life. So you see, this goes together, doesn't it? It's always any subject you take in Christianity, family, it's word of God and family. Prayer, word of God and family. Word of God and prayer. Finances, word of God and finances. Evangelism, word of God and evangelism. You see what I'm saying? It always begins there with the word of God. And I would assure you that people are starving to death. Starving to death. There's a famine of the word of God in the land. Therefore, they cannot pray. They cannot worship. And many of them cannot go to heaven. Because there is a famine of the word of God. You want your people to pray? Become a man of prayer. You want your people to pray correctly, spend hours a day in that book. You see, you've been given a privilege. I always think when I'm tired of studying, I think about the mechanic. and I know many of them. The carpenter, the janitor, the housewife, homeschooling eight children. I think about them when I'm tired. And oh, I get frightened. What that mechanic would give. To lay aside his tools for a day and study the word of God for 12 hours. What that homeschooling mother would give to like, like Miss Wesley, cast an apron over her head and pray for a few hours without being bothered. And me, it's my job. How dare I despise it? Will not the congregation rise up against me on the day of judgment and say, how could you? How could you be given the highest task and to forfeit it, to play marbles with diamonds, you see? Now, having said that, let's look at Jesus for a moment. Let's go to the book of Luke and then we're going to end in the book of Mark. I want to go to Luke 5. And I want you to look at something, just just listen to the word of God. Just listen. In this case, very little exposition required. Luke, Chapter five, verse 15. But the news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathered to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. I read a thing, I can't define the page, I think it was something that Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that a young man will devote himself to prayer and the study of God's Word and and begin to have a sense of, of success. He began to preach with a power unusual to the people around him. He'll be exalted so that people are calling upon him to pray and to do this and to do that. And then he gets so busy that He lays aside the very thing that made Him the man He had become. How dangerous this is. But look at Christ. The news about Him was spreading even farther. Larger crowds were gathering to hear Him. But He Himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. And this was not just out of duty. He longed to be alone with His Father. Now, let me show you something. It is a spiritual truth. It has proven itself true so many times in my own life. You are either spiraling upward or you're spiraling downward. You give yourself, as you give yourself more and more to pray, prayer will become more and more a delight. As you keep giving in to the temptations not to pray, prayer will move from a delight to duty and then from duty to nothing. It's the same way with the Word of God. The more you give yourself to the study of the Word of God, the more the Word of God becomes a delight. So that your wife will have to drag you out of your office to preach, because you would rather stay there and study. Just be with Him. No, you're never neutral, brothers. You're never neutral, sisters. Never! You're either going up and increasing, or you're coming down and decreasing. And when you sense that, it's a danger. So cut off your right hand if necessary, pluck out your right eye, but don't allow yourself to go down that spiral. Now go on to look at chapter six, verse 12 and 13. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them. Whom he also named as apostles. We're talking about, we're talking about here, we're talking about the book of Proverbs incarnate. (laughs) Jesus Christ was the Word, He was wisdom. And yet we see in His incarnation, He tarries the whole night in prayer before His Father before making. The most important decision. Yet how quick are we to make decisions. Without prayer, look at Luke 9. For a moment. 9 17. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up twelve baskets full. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? After a great victory, after a great working of God, a tremendous miracle that would spread abroad. Where do we find him once again? Praying, praying, praying. Look at Mark, I mean, look at Luke 9, 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. I could keep going, but it would be redundant. I could keep going. Prayer, prayer, prayer in the life of our Lord. I think twice today, someone has mentioned going from the greater to the lesser. If the incarnate God, If the one to whom the spirit was given without measure. Lived a life of prayer. In his ministry toward God. How much must you and I do the same? Now, I want you to look at chapter 11, verse one. And we'll talk about this tomorrow, but I just want to mention it. It happened that while Jesus was praying. In a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Now, I find this quite amazing. I probably wouldn't walk up to Michael Jordan and say, teach me theoretical mathematics. (laughs) Although he may be a good mathematician. But what is he known for? basketball, maybe the greatest, teach me to play basketball. Now, why would I ask him that and not you? Because that was the extraordinary thing in his life. It was extraordinary. It was, it's the most extraordinary thing about Michael Jordan was his ability to play basketball. Now, notice the disciples did not come to Jesus and say, teach us to cast out demons, Teach us to walk on water. Teach us to raise the dead. Teach us to calm a storm. But what did they say? Teach us to pray. Could it been that one of the most extraordinary things about our Lord was His life of prayer? Old Leonard Ravenhill once told a story about he there was this man of prayer, and I've got an idea who he is, but he never mentioned his name. But there was a man of prayer and one day he walked in the room while that man of prayer was praying. Someone asked him, what did you do? He said, I stopped, I held my breath and I walked backwards out the door. And someone said, why? He said, because you never turn your back on royalty. You never turn your back on royalty. I have been privileged in my life to know men and women that were for the most part unknown, but extraordinary in their life of prayer. And they were something. They were something other, something more. Because so much time spent in the presence of God. But I want you to know that every one of them, those so devoted to prayer and gifted in prayer, did not neglect the reading of God's word. Because again, there is a direct correlation between prayer and the word of God. They said, teach us to pray. Has anyone ever heard you pray? And walked up to you and said, please, teach me to pray. I've never heard anybody pray like that. It's as though you know him. Oh, brethren, we are to seek to be that man. I think that if a man would give himself to knowing God's Word, so that he can live God's Word and proclaim God's Word, and give himself to prayer, that man would be mightily used of God, regardless of all his other limitations. Brethren, remember, this world is like Jericho. It is tightly shut up. No one comes out, no one comes in. Only God can make that wall fall. And He has chosen to do it through the proclamation of His Word, intercessory prayer and in a godly life. I have no other weapon. I want no other weapon. And no man will stand by My side and fight who chooses to pick up a different weapon. Period. You can take that foolishness someplace else. All your strategies and your your gizmos and your ideas about how to reach people. You can take it, but please go to an island where there's no people so that you won't damage anybody. Now, let's look for a minute, I want us to look quickly at the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1. Now, before we look at the larger text, I want to point out something to you. Look at Mark chapter 1 verse 10. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Look at verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Look at verse 20. Immediately, he called them and they left their father Zebedee. Verse 21. They went into, the, into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Verse twenty. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Verse 29, and immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Verse 30, now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And now we could go on. Now, what's my point? I forget who it was, but one old commentary writer said this. If you read the book of Mark and at the end you are not out of breath, you have not properly read the book of Mark. There are these pictures of Christ just flashing before us. Just flashing. There was never a man more consumed with a ministry. Never a man with more responsibility laid upon him. There's never a man, say it in, in our terminology, more busy, busier, there was never a man like that. I mean, when I think of the ministry of Moses leading so many of the Israelites, most of them unconverted, out of Egypt, through the wilderness, I think what a burden, that was nothing compared to the ministry and burden of Christ. Now, having said that, let's look at verse 32. This is after he's now left the, the home of uh, Simon's mother in law, It says when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was in the early morning. While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there now. In order for you to understand what's going on, we, so many times, just like most people's idea of the Exodus is from Cecil B. DeMille instead of Moses, most of our ideas of the ministry of Christ are oftentimes shaped by medieval portraits and paintings. So we look at this and we can assume that everyone is properly standing in line, their hands folded, and waiting their turn as Jesus ministers to each and every one of them. Well, that's not what happened at all. I remember years ago, we had gone up in the northern Andes of Peru in a place called Piura, and we had gone up from a place called Pacaypampa to a conference in Santa Rosa. Most people to get there, it would take them 24 hours or 48 hours to either walk or ride their burros to get there. Now this was in the wake of a 20-year extension of the gospel through a Peruvian brother by the name of Ángel Colmenares who is now home to be with the Lord, in which I, conservatively estimate that 350 to 500 churches were planted as the indirectly as a result of that man's life and ministry and so i had the privilege of being asked to to be a part of, of the latter harvest in which my primary job was to protect the fruit because so many cults and sects and everything would come in and try to tear the church apart and so I did a lot of conferences there and um, we were in one conference in Santa Rosa. I think there were somewhere but around 1100 people who had gathered, had walked there. Um, you slept on a bedroll or a pallet or a straw in the dirt outside. If you were a privileged speaker, you got to sleep in the dirt inside. But it was usually worse because the fleas would get you, it was better outside. And one time in this particular conference, I decided I would bring a doctor with me, a medical doctor. These people are some of the most loving and kind people you ever met in your life. Yet when they discovered that I had brought a medical doctor with me, it was literal chaos. Why? Many of them had terrible ailments, terrible sufferings, or their children were sick and some of them may be dying and all kinds of things. And they found out there was a doctor that could maybe help them. And even though we told them, he didn't bring medicine, he only has a few creams and things like that, and he doesn't have his equipment and there's no hospital and we can't do surgery. Three days, some of them stood in line. And I saw very, very good people, kind people, becoming agitated, even to the point of almost violent to try to get to the doctor. Would you not do the same if your little girl was sick? Do anything? That's what's going on here. As a matter of fact, knowing something of this kind of setting, I'm amazed that Christ was able to depart and go out into the wilderness. I sometimes think that it must have been supernatural. Because I have seen people stay up all night, around the house or around the little adobe hut where the doctor was staying, just hoping he would come outside for anything and they would grab him. So here we have Christ the man, who I must believe was utterly wore out, because He mentioned it another time, that in great ministry, virtue went out from Him. Strength went out from Him. Never forget, it was God in the flesh. He was the man, Christ Jesus, who did what he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, what do we see? Mark testifies that after this tremendous ministry that seems to, that began in the evening and that continued on to who knows how long, in the early morning while it was still dark. You know what's going on there, right? Something of a parallelism, a repetition, to add emphasis. It was very early. Very early, Jesus got up, left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Now, I am not in any way insinuating that ministers of Christ ought to neglect sleep. Or should always be giving themselves to this type of ministry and this type of praying. I'm just saying, look at the life of our Lord. This was an extraordinary day, but he would not allow it to interrupt his secluded, private communion with God. Everything flows from this. Everything flows. Now to say, what's more important, Brother Paul, the Word of God or prayer, that's, it, it doesn't have a biblical answer because it's not a biblical question. But I will say this, I feel that it is most important that God speak to me rather than I speak to God. So I would give a priority, at least a temporal priority to the word of God. But I know from the life of my Lord, from the lives of the apostles who sat under him, through the teaching of the Apostle Paul, that I cannot expect to be useful to the Lord apart from prayer. I have no reason to expect an unusual unction or insight. Brethren, let me share something with you, especially for some of you who may be younger, may be in seminary. I know men who not only are good at Greek, they speak Greek fluently. Modern Greek, Erasmus, both of them. I know men who speak Hebrew. Modern Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, Masoretic, they're not even converted. They can go through grammar backwards and forwards. Now, I am not diminishing the knowledge of the languages. I, I plead with you to study the languages. But what I'm trying to say to you is this. Gaining knowledge from Scripture is more than being someone who has mastered grammar or diagramming, even though grammar and diagramming are extremely important, or mastered a language, even though it's very important. There's more to this than that. It is not that the Holy Spirit is going to give you some spiritual answer that somehow contradicts the grammar. No, I'm not saying that at all. That is is wrong, that's demonic, that's frightening. But what I'm saying is the ability to truly understand what is written, to grab a hold of it, to apply it, to preach it, to make it known. Light requires more than simply the knowledge of grammar. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And I can prove that in the praying of the Apostle Paul, particularly in Ephesians, chapter three. Illumination, illumination, pray, pray. And that's what we need today. We need men who know the languages, who understand the grammar, who can diagram. Men who are aware of propositional truth, have a non-contradictory theology men who are tied to history because we do our theology in the context of the church, comparing what we have discovered to those in the past. And if they all agree with one another and disagree with us, guess who's wrong? And yet it's more than that. Oh God, this Sunday I must feed people. Something has to happen to me to us you see but not only that oh god i must be a godly husband i need more than knowledge i need power do you see our religion is supernatural our religion is supernatural Preaching must be supernatural. Everything about our lives must be supernatural. Proverbs 31 in its description of a godly woman. Do you realize that everything that's written there about that godly woman is impossible naturally? Ephesians 5, godly husband. Do you think there's any way that can be carried out naturally? you walking in the footsteps of Christ, is that going to be accomplished in the flesh? Or just through a great amount of knowledge? Absolutely not. We are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And I am not going to allow a group of heretics to steal my inheritance. The Holy Spirit is extremely important. And there seems to be something of a direct relationship between saturating our lives in His Word and crying out to God in prayer. I believe Bethany Jones said this of Martin, You will never understand my husband as an evangelist, if you do not first understand him as a man of prayer. Spurgeon, I don't care. (laughs) I am so sick and tired of hearing about Spurgeon's photographic memory. Because I know a lot of people with photographic memories that are going to go to hell. You, You can't explain Spurgeon. You can say he's a savant. You can say he had a brain five times the size normal. You can say anything you want, but none of it physically, naturally explains a Spurgeon. It doesn't. It's supernatural. No one can do that. I have spent 30 years reading that man. And, and you, I'm sorry, but doesn't that bring us great hope? The same Christ that died for Him, died for us. The same position He has before the Father, we have before the Father in Christ. The same Spirit that dwelled within Him dwells within us. And though it may exp- He may express Himself in a different fashion through us according to personalities and giftings and all sorts of things, yet we can accomplish much in the Kingdom of Heaven without having His photographic memory or His brain You see, so there's hope for us, the runts of the litter. Give me a runt of the litter. Who will seek God in his word. Who will seek God in prayer. Who refuses Saul's armor and goes out with only the weapons of warfare that God has given His men. And that is the proclamation of the Word of God. Intercessory prayer and a godly life. Give me someone like that. I'll take him over everything. And God will use that runt to move mountains. To move mountains. All oh, brethren. Not many noble, not many wise. Being used in the ministry is the only thing I've ever qualified for, because I'm not noble. I have no noble background. I'm not wise. Hopefully, I see the same thing that you see when you look inside. Nothing. Nothing. But. God. But. God. Oh, the power of God. Oh, the presence of God. Oh, what God can do. Oh, I'm so embarrassed when I look at some of the extraordinary Miraculous answers to prayer in my life that have come out of the most feeble and pitiful praying. Oh, you have not, because you ask not. I'll go to him. You know, I'll end with this. I always tell my Reformed brethren, I said, I find it amazing when you guys teach on the book of Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost. And they say, why do you find it extraordinary? I said, because the only thing you tell us is what it doesn't mean. You never tell us what it does mean. And to put it very, very concisely, I think that what we see in Acts chapter 2 is much of what we see in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. We're seeing a new covenant promise. And you say, oh, you mean visions and dreams and this and that. No, 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 no. I, I'm sorry that prophets were much more mature than you. Joel was not delighting over some means through which revelation would come to God's people or understanding of God would come to God's people. That, that's not the permanent thing that's temporal, it's prophetic. The marvel of that passage is this. God promises in the New Covenant that His people would have an extraordinary understanding or knowledge of God. He promises them the most extraordinary knowledge of God. There will be no need to teach your neighbor. Everyone will know me, from the least to the greatest. An extraordinary knowledge of God is promised in the New Covenant. Do you know what else? An extraordinary abundance of the Holy Spirit life and power is promised in the New Covenant. And I can tell you this, if there are two things for which I have grabbed a hold of the horns of the altar, and said, I will not let you go until you bless me, is fulfill these two covenant promises in my life, that I might know Thee, O oh God and for greater and greater manifestations of the life and power of the Holy Spirit in me and in my preaching. Give whatever gifts to other men that you may, that's what I want, to know thee, to know your power. Oh, brothers, Martin Lloyd-Jones said more than once, the problem is not that men don't pray, the problem is that they don't keep praying. Luke 18. God, we'll talk about that tomorrow, hopefully. You say, I pray. Well, that's not the question. Do you keep praying? Do you give him no rest? Do you give him no rest? You say, oh, that's borderline blasphemy. No, it's solidly biblical. He says, give me no rest. But know this, a fool will attempt to give God no rest and do very stupid things. Before you decide that you're going to give God no rest, make sure you know Him and you tremble before Him. And you stand in reverence of His name. All right. Well, brother.